0: Welcome to the Pride in STEM podcast, a series centred around bringing forward the voices of those who face barriers within the LGBTQ plus community. I'm your host, Dr. Kray Poku, a black British queer scientist who goes by he, they pronouns. We want to mark the international day of LGBTQIA plus people in STEM with important conversations from different members of our rainbow community that will provide insights, highlight barriers and discuss solutions in the context of STEM both within the United Kingdom and Ireland. In this episode, we'll be focusing our discussion on gender identity. The British press, combined with the way in which language is used by those who are cisgendered, consequently forms an unsafe environment for those who identify under the trans umbrella. If we want to change this, we need to look at the behaviours of both ourselves and those around us to create more inclusive spaces. We hope that this discussion is the first of many steps to do this. Joining me today are the wonderful Shapangi and Avery. Firstly, welcome to you both and can you tell me a little bit about yourselves?
1: Um, Hi, I'm Dr. Shapani Karmakar. I'm an academic clinician in St. James's Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. Um, I am a trainee editorial editor for the British Journal of Psychiatry and a reviewer for the International Journal of Medical Ethics. As you can tell, I very much define myself by the work I do. Um, But also, I am, I suppose, gender ambivalent or gender agnostic. I identify as Indian by birth, British by naturalization, Irish by the grace of God, and I use the pronouns she and they interchangeably, and I prefer male declensions, so being referred to as sir rather than man. Awesome, and
2: Avery, it's your dad. So hi, I'm Avery, Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, so, I'm currently finishing up my master's in nuclear decommissioning and waste management at the University of Birmingham. And post this, I should soon be starting my PhD in nuclear fusion research. Um, so, I am a transgender man who is biromantic and demisexual. I'm also disabled, so I have a severe anxiety and depression, which I've struggled with for a number of years. Within the last year or so, I was diagnosed with autism. Uh, I mention all this because I always feel it's important to acknowledge my intersex and identities because none of them exist in a vacuum. They all impact my experiences, including around gender. Um, Outside of my studies, I do a lot of work around diversity in STEM, mainly with an LGBTQ in STEM um focus holding positions such as director of student membership for ostem vice chair of the institute of materials minerals and mining pride network and diversity for the nuclear institute midlands branch to name a few excellent
0: just to begin i feel like both of you have such a wide perspective is that what i want to say Yeah, wide perspective on like your experiences um because of course like Uh, one of the things that I talk about a lot is this idea of intersectionality and you can't just see it as intersection like gender identity and that's it because we are aware that all kind of intersects into like different aspects both within the LGBTQ plus community but also other identities in examples for example like disability, race and in this Mm -hmm. case sexuality and gender so I guess to kind of like begin this discussion And it'll be interesting to kind of hear both of your perspectives on this, because I feel like you're going to address this question in different ways. What do you think are the key barriers for gender minorities in STEM? And I've asked this question in a very vague way, but if you want to make it more specific to
2: the audience, then feel free to go. So, um, Avery, do you want to kickstart? Um, Some of the kind of key barriers I've always found um, while going for my studies is kind of the la- lack of role models. Um, I always kind of try and when I do things like this I'm at home how hard it is to see yourself succeed in STEM if you can't see people around you. So I'm from like I always really did like STEM but I always struggled to see people like me succeeding. I'm from quite a from quite a poor area just outside of Birmingham um, which is means that there wasn't a lot of stem people to look up for around me and then throwing in all the other identities it was really hard to see myself nice. succeed and if there's no one like me uh especially uh, somebody who's like a transgender man um even finding other transgender men um, has been something difficult for me in my community. Mm. Um, it means you also have to be a trailblazer a lot of the time, which is really hard. It's really draining to have to be like the first trans man that a lot of people have in have kind of seen. And so when you're also then having to do that education alongside while also mm. doing all your other barriers to STEM, like STEM is difficult. And so when you're always fighting, it's just a huge barrier. Mm. And Panya, what are your thoughts on
1: that? Well, I suppose I see STEM in a very interesting way, having done lab work in my masters, as well as obviously working as a clinician now and then doing a lot of qualitative research. I think I when I started um doing other community work for a long time I some activism around healthcare and reproductive rights in Ireland, I used to, you know, feel like visibility was this really important thing and you know, that it was actually going to gain tangible returns. But I found disability, at least in my experience, and this is definitely colored by my experience of race, as something that's incredibly reductive, like in terms of how people visualize me, because people usually see m- my, my skin color and my race and characterize me as that and all the stereotypes that come with it first. And then, you know, maybe they'll see, like, even when I was describing myself there, I forgot to even like think about the fact that my biggest challenge in my work is probably my physical and my mental disabilities. But, you know, if they come, if they overcome the race barrier, then they're like, oh, yeah, you're disabled and that's why you can't do stuff. And then eventually when it gets to gender identity, it's like nobody even, like, nobody even thinks to talk about it. Like the only times I've ever ended up talking about it is in- incredibly instinctively when somebody's, you know, asked me a straight question and I've given them a straight answer without thinking about it and without thinking about what the implications are. But, yeah, like, I don't know. I've For me, I think visibility can be like the way that people frame your visibility can be really reductive and i suppose like that experience is going to exist as a person who is not binary and trans but is trans and you know gender ambivalent or whatever and you know even the intersection of that and being queer and or bi and poly what people very much see of that what they want to see you know They see Mm. me as a brown Indian person more than anything else. When I talk about my partners, even if I'm talking about different ones, their brain will just retcon that to mean like you're referring to one person. Mm. And yeah, I think there's a big barrier in terms of how reductive you can be read. But then I guess what's very different for me in the medical setting compared to the lab setting is obviously the fact that you have to put yourself very much out there and interact with so many people all the time. And you're never quite ready for how people are going to react to you. Mm. Like, you know, working in psych, are hoping to work in psychiatry and everything, it's been like a lifetime of learning. I've worked in a lot of crisis mental health care. It's been a lifetime of learning that the way people approach you is a lot more about them. It's a lot more about their medical state or their emotional state. But it still means that, you know, you're never quite prepared for the next slur that's going to hit you. Or you're never quite prepared for like when people will just Randomly, but very loudly, object to who you are when they hear about it. Hmm. That can be a real challenge sometimes. I think like that—not fear, but that never quite knowing. Yeah, I think is a very big barrier um, because I suppose as a non-binary trans person who's, you know, definitely not about to any particular gender or changing of appearance, it it can be really hard to just live as a non-binary person without having to assert to people that you are, in fact, non-binary. Mm. And in medicine, that, that's a losing battle. Like, your day-to-day, that's always a losing battle. Like, I remember the, the the first time I felt just like something was very, very wrong was when it was like uh, a, co- a colleague of mine that's super queer-friendly, whom I, I'd been debating coming out to like, just this one person, just for some safety and work. I've been debating mentally coming out to them for like the first few weeks of my job. And for some reason, I decided to say no to myself. And then we were just doing some clinical jobs and they turn around and they, you know, offhandedly go, ah, oh, yeah, good woman. And it just felt so wrong. Like, it just felt so not me, but I'd never really thought about it. Hmm. Like I never really thought about the impact of being misgendered all the time until it was in that one moment. And yeah, that can just be really hard. Hmm. Like it's really difficult sometimes and particularly different, difficult in Ireland where people just do not, it's not, they do not ask about diversity. They do not document diversity, like particularly for competitive jobs like mine. Like I have one of 24 jobs in the country doing academic medical work. They do not ask for any disability status or offer any accommodations. They do not chronicle the ethnicity or like, you know, identities of the, of the applicants because it's designed to be a really exclusionary program. Mm. And in those spaces, it can just be really hard to exist and be all of yourself. But you also then kind of don't really have an option, you know? Yeah. Because if you're unsupported, then you just have to make the most of life for yourself. And you can say like you know sometimes it is useful i hope that in some ways it can model that there is opportunity for other people there in the future but most days i'm just trying to keep my head above water and whatever about pioneering or whatever you want to call it it is really just keeping your head above water
2: hmm.
0: i think it's in the, so for both of the points so you both make some really valid points um avery's point about um representation especially as you get further throughout your career is something that I definitely relate to as um one of the few black British atmospheric scientists um that I'm aware of and then when you add queerness into that then that kind of makes you kind of stick out like a sore thumb in a way and it's weird because whenever people ask me about Um, what do I think about queer representation I always make the argument to say that people don't see my queerness they see my blackness and I think that in a way um, part like this probably relates back to what Avery was also saying as well because also depending on um, people's stage of transitioning as well there's that stage where people are always consistently misgendering you and I also think that is due to the fact that There is this weird thing where where there is this thing in society where, like, gender identity isn't accounted for, gender identity isn't spoken about. Gender identity is still seen as this kind of, like, second thought. And it's very transphobic in these spaces as well. And especially for the work that you do, Shipagi, like, you're one of X Mm -hmm. amount of people that do that type of job. And the fact that they don't even account for different... Identities within that space, it's already setting you up for failure at that point. So you're always feeling like you have to be the trailblazers in these spaces. And that's a problem. And that's kind of leading me on to my next question, I guess. Both of you have kind of touched upon it, but how do you feel that like the lack of representation has affected your journey within your respective career so far?
1: Yeah. So I think the biggest impact lack of representation has had on my careers, and, you know, I'm not just including medicine, I'm including journalism and activism, and a lot of the other things I do, is very much feeling like I had to represent myself in the mold of other people. Mm. And that's been a thing professionally, but personally, you know, like we talk about identity. And I always have to ask myself, like, am I, you know, visibly clear enough and i'm visibly trans enough to be in the space of like you know what i probably am one of the most like and proud trans people in this hospital whether people read me as that or not is not actually my problem Mm. but the only way i would be an unhappy trans person would be if i had to pretend to be somebody else's idea and i feel like i was doing something very similar in my other professional fields and stuff for a while too where you know i was presenting my work as if a you know, cis-het, white dude had presented it, or I was writing in lifestyle journalism, appealing to the voice of a cis-het, white, middle-class, able-bodied woman. And I feel like that's kind of a real challenge. And I mean, at the moment I'm doing that, I try and tackle it in academia and medicine by doing peer mentoring for people who are underrepresented where I will mentor them, but I'll also actually match them to a mentor who is a CIS head guy, because I feel like they're the best of both worlds to be had where you learn your lack of, um, your lack of reticence, where you learn your confidence in yourself from privileged people, but you match it with developing your own voice as an underrepresented person. Mm. So I try to do that kind of bridge mentoring. Um, I also, at the moment, am developing a slow journalism project which will be run by myself and a partner of mine who is also handled. so they've been a newspaper editor for years. I've been an academic you know, research editor for years and alongside all the other journalistic work we do, the work I do in the British Journal now, where we, know we are making steps in improving language around gender and sex. We're also creating our own space and filling it with editors so that underrepresented people don't always just have to solicit, you know, and curry favor and make the right friends with privileged people. Mm. Like they can be edited, I suppose, by a group of their peers and provide peer editing in a group of their peers so that that you can put your own voice first. You don't have to be a trailblazer relative to other privileged people or Mm. relative to other people who are already visible. You can just hone a community where being yourself is enough. And being yourself should allow you to have the same audacity, the same creative flair, the same courage, and the same integrity Mm. as anybody else. And I think that's, yeah, like, out of the challenges I've seen constantly having to grovel for the approval of people who have no idea about my life and what it takes to live it, but very much know how they want to frame it for profit. Mm. I think a lot of it has been about learning how to bring all the experience we have, because, yeah, there are fewer trans people in everything I do, but bring all the experience I have, the experiences we've had targeted against us with, like, the virulent transphobia and journalism and, the and using that to create a space where we can collectivise and build on our own experience and narratives hmm. and, like, really strengthen them.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And actually, um, I to kind of speak about this... Um, I just want to pick up a point about that you said about the whole mentorship thing. So um, for our audience who are listening to this, um, a lot of mentorship programs sometimes still have this dependency of minority groups looking after minority groups. And there is an advantage to that, but the problem with that is that you find that the emotional labor that people who are further in their career who also fall into a minority group by definition tend to mean that they're still dealing with the emotional labor. And unfortunately, that means that there can be a scenario whereby when they're trying to progress their own careers, they don't have that energy to put into the career because they're focusing on EDI work. And this is something Mm -hmm. that if you are listening to this and you have the, like, I guess, the power or know the people in power to actually account for this when it comes to dealing with, um, like, promotional criteria, just think about it. So that's sort of like my only kind of like, point on that. Um,
1: Yeah, yeah, just really briefly as well. So one of the other things that I recently started doing is I'm on the race and ethnicity advisory group Mm. to the uh, National Institute of Health Maudsley Biomedical Research Centre. It's a very long title to effectively say that, yeah, I guess somewhat mitigate this question of emotional labour. Like, we are a group of volunteers, of people of all ethnicities who have come together to basically act as a pool of reference for researchers or community mm. people who want to start community projects on how they can make their work, you know, how they can make their language inclusive, but also their actions inclusive, um, how they can make their work more rooted and led by their communities. Yeah. And I feel like certainly a lot to do with, like, the career fatigue is realizing what the relative reimbursement and what the relative validation of the work we do is because a lot of our minority you know a lot of our mentoring minorities is often either like started off our own back started up our own initiative and it's often informal and is often unpaid which means yeah you know we're not applying for grants in the time we're mentoring people we're not applying for i guess these markers of formal validation that are required or you know the citations that are required to progress in your career mm. even though we probably put it in more into like making not just you know a community more inclusive for us, but a community that's more representative for all of our coworkers, and you know that applies to race as much as disability, as much as queerness and gender identity. Oh, definitely. And, and like certainly, like spaces like the Read Group, and the Read Group is hopefully going to expand over the next few years to specifically address issues around disability representation and queerness and representation as well. So like you know even in that space, I'm a minority within a minority and within a minority as a queer, disabled, trans person of color. Yeah. But I think one of the things that's really important is that those spaces are funded. Now, the funding is optional. Like, there are some people I know who are at a stage in their career where they've said, I don't need this reimbursement. I'm more than happy to donate my share of the reimbursement to whatever. But there are certainly people at the start of their careers to whom it's really beneficial to be able to state, you know, I provided mentorship to a national research center or I provided advice to a national research center, which was reimbursed. Hmm. Like, I know it's only like three more words, but in the capitalistic society we live in, people give you more esteem if they know that you were paid for the work that you did. Oh
0: yeah, definitely,
1: for sure. And it's so important. And you know, like, look, if we're not getting like, you know, grants, thousands to run projects, we are putting our time into building our communities. Then the least we can do is be reimbursed in alternative ways or be reimbursed by title. As an academic editor, obviously everything I do for the integrity of the science is unpaid. Mm. But the fact that you know there's a significant commitment to developing and training my skills and like to have a functional title of an academic editor before I'm 25, like for an internet for two international journals, those things actually matter. And I think not just you know, seeking mentorship, not just seeking amplification, but really making sure that the people who are being amplified Mm. have enough you know tangible resources tangible supports to cover their emotional labor and are safe in a world where the eye of the media is very unsafe for us like i've been doxxed many 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 times just making sure that people are safe to be visible and are supported to be visible is really important
0: definitely um avery do you have any following up comments on that so like how has the lack of representation impacted your journey to STEM? And do you have any like expanding thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, so I've already kind of mentioned it's kind of um not having visible role models has always kind of been an issue. Um, like I'm I'm not alone. I think a lot of us in like science have experienced imposter syndrome at time. It's a big part of my anxiety that I'm not good enough to be here, not good enough to see in science. So if then times I'm looking around, I don't see anyone else likes me, it gives power to that little voice, in my brain, mm. saying I don't belong there because no one else like me is succeeding. So what makes me think that I'm special and different enough, Susan so um, said. Uh, but additionally, um, it plays into like Part of being, I don't think, sometimes gets talked about is being transgender can be really, really lonely at some times. Mm. Um, there's a wonderful, supportive LGBTQ community, but if you don't got that support of people who are also experiencing the same things as you, it can be difficult. Mm. Uh, for example, <laughs> being transgender in the UK is really, really hard when you're looking at the news every day coming for you and saying you're awful people. That is also taxing when you're also just trying to get on and do your science when you're on multi-year waiting lists like i am waiting for medical treatment and then you're having to explain to people like your supervisors what you're doing where you're going like i've had to push back um starting my phd because i've waited so long to get top surgery which i did finally get this summer but it also meant that i had to like again put what I was doing on hold to get it done and because mm. I couldn't get it done many, many years ago when I really wanted it done. And I had to be that educator explaining why I was going away for the summer, what I was doing. I have to explain top surgery to them, what it was going to entail, what I was going to be So it's been that education and that they've not been aware of anyone doing this. So you're again, being that draining educator. And you are often explained to people around you, even your supported people who are trying to support your journey instead. I have a wonderful supportive partner, but as a cis person, she doesn't always quite get what I'm doing at all times and doesn't quite understand what I am going through. And I feel like a support network in the difficult, you've got two difficult things happening at the same time. Um, so it's really difficult and very sub- Difficult to keep going like that. Um, it also means that you have to rely a lot on, I think, on like especially cis allies to ensure that your well being is being kept. Mm-hmm. So when I was like looking for PhDs, um, I was having to look for. You know, I was getting tips from people, thankfully, about looking to search um, because they weren't. People were helping me because they weren't convinced all of the supervisors would exactly have my best interests um, around my identity. Um, known to them for example I mean the university I go to has a Dubai campus for example I had to make sure that I wasn't going to be expected as part of my whatever PhD program I accepted that I wasn't going to be sent abroad to somewhere that would be unsafe to me if there yeah. wasn't that expectation of going yeah. to anything like that then I have to be the one to keep that in mind all the time um to make sure that those allies are actually being my allies. Mm. Um, It's just an extra step to think of when doing any kind of applications when you're trying to do all these things.
0: Mm. And on the topic of allies as well, so just for um, transparency in this discussion, um, I identify as a cis male, and our jobs as allies isn't to always feel comfortable and feel like our feelings need to be coddled when somebody is discussing the hardship that they're going through. I particularly talk about it from the perspective of race. As an ally, Um, One of the things that I do is I listen. I know when it's my place to basically shut up and listen. And I also ensure that I use my privilege as somebody who assists to ensure that I can give a platform to people who don't have access to spaces that they need to have access to. Even if that means I know that if so, I know somebody who's trans who is applying for a PhD, but I'm aware that the group that they're applying for has had a history of transphobia, for example, I would say to them, For your safety, I would not make you or suggest that you apply to that group, for example. And I always say this because I think that when it comes to allyship, a lot of the times, a lot of people feel as though that they want their feelings to be kind of like huddled or they want to be at the centre of that discussion. That's not your space to do that. And you're definitely right. The UK is so transphobic in the way in which they do the. The, the rhetoric it's in the media all the time and Shepage, I suspect that in Ireland as well it's even more yeah, yeah, it's, as well
1: yeah I mean like you know having been in the national paper of record in Ireland yeah I've, uh, I've had to directly experience Irish transphobia and then swiftly after a uh, racially and queer well queerness motivated doxing so mm. yeah it's not it, it's, it's, it's certainly whatever the opposite of the good thing yeah yeah You've also kind of brought up. Sorry, um, I'm not being facetious. It's just all you can do is laugh sometimes because this this stuff kills your friends. Hmm. It it pushes you to the edge sometimes. So you know. Hmm. Avery, I'm not trying to be facetious.
2: Yeah, I just, you you kind of brought up another kind of another kind of barrier, is that we have to kind of rely on these whisper networks to be safe as LGBT people instead. Like, you have to kind of seek out your community to try and find these kind of safe people. How, if you are somebody who doesn't kind of have the LGBT community, you can end up in very unsafe situations, unsafe mm-hmm. groups, very easily because you have to, and we have to rely a lot on, our peers telling us that maybe don't work with that person they're not very good Mm. Uh, they won't respect you they're not very safe because especially when people can when you look them up they can look like they do great work for edi they can be on all the committees they can be saying the right things on twitter but it doesn't mean that when you're actually working with them they are nice and respectful and so it's kind of another barrier that other people who aren't in this group don't have to think of they don't have to worry or ask around their friends ask around their peers trying to figure out if this person is actually as nice as they say they are to work with
0: mm, definitely for sure i think something that especially i'm thankful for spaces like twitter that have allowed me to find those communities but i know that prior to that it was difficult i mean like through twitter i met both um you and Japan, and i'm very grateful for that space to be able to just be myself i guess mm.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, um, sorry, carry on. Yeah, I just want to say as well, like whisper networks can be really challenging because, you know, not only is it that you have to rely on certain groups and like, you know, the issue is also you can have in groups and out groups. And that doesn't make either of them, you know, better or worse than the other. Both can have some seriously good and some seriously problematic people (laughs) You can inadvertently fall into an in or out group that just will like set you up for shit for the rest of like your life, or at least the next five years, professionally speaking, you won't even realize because you didn't even know anybody. And in some ways, I suppose it's like the same with, it It, it, it echoes, I guess, whisper for groups of other minorities, like I, as as a little baby neurodivergent person trying to figure stuff out, I was like, "Oh yeah, I'll go work in neurogenomics i autism and ADHD, because obviously, fuck <laughs> going to a doctor to get treated myself. That doesn't happen in Ireland. Um, you just go and become an eminent researcher in that field, and it's fine." Oh, no. I remember going like, I remember when I was eleven or twelve, being like, like very naively, being like, "One day I want to work with Simon Baron Cohen." And I look back at that now, and I'm like, "Holy fuck, no!" No, uh... that's. Yeah, like I see it so much in research. I see it even like with disability and stuff. You know, I've recently come to a working diagnosis of hypermobility and query and standoff. And that doesn't mean that I have not had the condition all my life, but it's certainly getting worse. And, you know, knowing exactly which consultant I have to speak to, even on my team, or, you know, which person I can really quietly beg to slip away for an hour, whereas the others will make me stay in like more as punishment it's so hard it, you're always taking a risk to exist as a minority and the more you rely on informality and whispers and goodwill the riskier it gets
2: mm-hmm. yeah because yeah, you do have the thing of the thing you also have to trust the person has all your intersecting identities and that actually it's important like just because they're nice to lgbt people or lgbt themselves doesn't mean they're not going to be incredibly ableist towards you you have to kind of yeah. Trust that they'll also have all of your identities in their mind when they're thinking of these things. And that's something
0: that I definitely relate to in the sense that for me is when I know people who will account for gender identity, but at the same time not acknowledge that being black is very difficult in a lot of spaces. And not having that awareness is something that I think um, can be very problematic when it comes to whisper networks. But I'm going to have to be that person. And actually kind of say we're going to have to stop that dis- um, the question because we're coming to the end of our uh, discussion we've made some it's been a really interesting chat so i've really enjoyed having both of you here on the podcast so again thank you um we're going to just round it up um for the audience um so as a sort of like final point If you could provide one solution to improve awareness of gender identity, whether that is um, through more visible role models, through better networking
2: or through like a more kind of like formal structure, what would it be? Avery, would you like to go first? Um, I'm always big on platforming minorities in STEM and not just always in events like this. It's great that we do events that focus just on EDI and platform people in STEM, but also yeah. and making sure that we raise the voices of minorities in STEM, not speaking for them. But it's also about embedding it in everything you do, like making sure your conferences, your seminars, your panels are all diverse. Um, I often hear that they can't find people out there, but I can assure you, if you look, you can make it happen um but also making sure you're not doing it as a tick box exercise if there's something that i can't stand in edi work it's doing tick box kind of i oh, always solved identities i'll often run about Athena Swan because although it does good work i feel a lot of edi work is done just to succeed for a Swan and being like well we've done a woman excellent um right. don't do it like that just make it part of the kind of mm. natural thing like we're just doing example we're doing a nice panel about nuclear energy and just trying to make sure that you do actually have a diverse mm. kind of panel. Definitely for sure. Uh, Shafandi how about you?
1: Yeah I think so I really liked your point there very I've seen you know a few high profile instances in both journalism and STEM where people have gone around and again they've made I guess <laughs> they've made it less about amplifying people who are diverse or say people who are queer in this instance and made it very much about almost like sourcing cattle for a tick box, like literally the way they've like even approached the language to the queer correspondents like whom they were hoping to work with. And these are some very famous people on Twitter. Um, Again, you know, Whisper Networks, et cetera, et cetera. But if you make people feel like you're like hoarding cattle, it's not a great start. And to be honest, if I've ever felt like that, I know I'm in a very, now in a very privileged position where I can say no to those things. But frankly, I think every queer person should be able to, or like every person, any minority, should at a minimum feel able to say no to things and mm-hmm. not feel like they have to be so much of a trailblazer that if they don't say no to something that really violates them, they're letting people down. Yeah. So yeah, like certainly like, not doing things that take well, so it's is really important. And also I think I really like setting big goals and very much accepting people as who they are. So like the one ally I found in work who I mentioned you know like i approached them very clearly was like look you know this whole like referring to me as a woman empathy isn't really working for me and they, like you know they didn't really do the whole like asking questions making it really invasive particularly in, like the space of the hospital they just kind of like took as read that if i didn't like something i was going to tell them and they were going to honor it no questions asked and making you know making inclusion intuitive like that is really good And then, you know, when you have platforms, like, particularly now in The Journal and a few other things I'm doing, when you have platforms, like, think big. Don't be afraid to think big just because you don't know, uh, you know, about intersecting identities. Think, like, let people who are trans, like, people who are disabled, let people who are Black or Brown or whatever, think big for you or, like, you know, come to you with big ideas that help them fulfill those. Hmm. don't make amplification about you know what you can fit into like the back end of a two-day conference so you can say you've done edi it's like you know some of the most satisfying talks i've given has been around like say like everything from psychedelics and their history of psychiatry to being an academic editor and like a lifetime of what that's been like trying to be just a well respected academic editor in my own right it, acknowledging of all of my identities but also kind of you know, irrespective of them, like not as the minority
0: candidate.
1: Mm. All of those are so contingent on spaces being great for bringing really big ideas. Like, as you say, Avery, you're very right. Like, there's definitely going to be people there. And those people, like, to be honest, particularly in spaces that are, you know, cis-head or otherwise privileged, those people, like, frankly, if you ask me to, like, do 8 billion panels on just identity, I will get tired. But if you ask me to do 8 billion panels on topics of my own choosing, which are then influenced about my life at an intersection of identities, that'll make for richer content, richer education, richer engagement. It'll bring together far more diverse contributors to future events. And all it requires is for somebody to let you think big and not just have you mine your own trauma or your own single story.
0: Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think that it's something that we need to, again, think bigger. And a lot of the time, especially like, I can think about like around Black Lives Matter, the amount of panels that I got asked to sit on, right? It was like talking about my experiences. And I was like, yeah, that's great. But I want to talk about more than that because my intersecting identities is the reason why I do the work that I do. And I do it in this particular way for that reason. And that should be celebrated. Um, as opposed to it being seen as a kind of like tick-boxing exercise, which for anybody listening to this, do not do tick-boxing exercises.
2: That's a bad idea. Um, Yeah, I would say it's also, you get much more water when you're accepting people as their whole person. Like I have mentioned all my identities Mm -hmm. and I've listed them, but that's not who I am to all my friends and everyone I work with. Agreed. I am am a scientist and I do all these things. I'm a massive nerd. I love Dungeons and Dragons. I think these are much more exciting things about me.
0: The nerd representation. Is. So- <laughs> yes. Um. Uh, I, I, I can't. I can't back the Dungeons and Dragons comment, but I am a massive nerd, and so <laughs> that's as far as I'm going to say on that comment because I don't want to offend anybody. But can I just say that it's been an absolute pleasure being able to chat with both of you um, on this podcast. I hope that. I guess I hope that you were able to at least just get the points that you wanted to get across with regards to gender identity within STEM, which we've only just scratched the surface, but actually it's a very um, multifaceted topic that I think that we could definitely be going on for this for a while. And um, I've learned a lot myself. So again, thank you for um, accepting my invitation to do this. So with that in mind, um, we are now at the end of the podcast. So again, to our listeners, thank you for listening. Um, I'd also like to thank Pride in STEM for providing this platform for us to be able to have these discussions. And I'd also like to thank our wonderful guests, uh, Shibangi and Avery. So with that in mind, uh, that's goodbye from me.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you so much. really appreciate it.
0: And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and I hope to see you on the other side. So take care, everyone.